Hello video game fans, I'm Ben Bertoli, and this is Memory Card. Push has the week off, and I've brought in an esteemed guest expert to take his spot. Today I'm joined by Kotaku Features Editor and Expert Game Collector, Chris Kohler. How are you, Chris? Uh, very good. I didn't know I was replacing somebody. Now I feel, you know, a lot more pressure. Oh, I'm sure you'll do fine. And if you're good enough, hey, maybe we'll just keep you on full time. Okay, sounds good. What's, what's the pay like? Uh, well, currently it pays nothing, but things are picking up. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a sponsor for season two. You could get double that. That's true. So do you have a little bit of juicy gaming history for us today? I do. You know, I know you guys have been talking about a lot of individual pieces of hardware, and I wanted to discuss a piece of hardware that never actually came out. I can't wait. Let's go ahead and boot up episode seven. So in the late 80s as going into the early 90s, video games started to think about embracing the CD-ROM as a, as a piece of technology that would be helpful for creating video games. Uh, it was actually in the late 80s uh, that we saw the TurboGrafx CD or the PC Engine CD-ROM-ROM come out in Japan at the end of 88, actually, which is really, really early when you think about it. It was super expensive, there weren't very many games, and the games themselves didn't really differ from what was on the cartridges at that time, except for they had a whole lot more voice acting, because the developers could fit a lot of voice acting out of the CD. What's really interesting about the PC Engine CD-ROM is that it was the, it was really like the first, like, mainstream consumer CD-ROM device ever, anywhere in the world. There were CD-ROM ah. drives for computers in, in like 85 or so, but they were super expensive and they weren't really something you would have in your home. It would, you know, I mean, imagine the computer you had in your house in 1985. It was not something you'd be buying a CD-ROM drive for. It was maybe like institutional use, like a library might use it to have a, an electronic encyclopedia sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so the CD-ROM uh, comes out for, for PC Engine in 1988, and that same year, 1988, Nintendo and Sony ink a deal uh, where Sony would be able to create um, a CD-ROM attachment, or actually what ended up being a sort of all-in-one cartridge and CD-ROM unit for Nintendo's upcoming 16-bit uh, video game system, the Super Famicom. And uh, so Sony was the company that was going to create a, a CD-ROM add-on for that, and that deal was signed in 1988. And then things just kind of got very crazy from there on out for a few years after. Now, hadn't Nintendo and Sony already worked on something together, like a sound chip or something? Exactly. So um, what, what had actually happened was Ken Kutaragi, who at that point was a pretty young engineer at Sony, he was in his early 30s, I think, really kind of wanted to make a name for himself at Sony and did a deal with Nintendo to provide the uh, sound chip in the Super Famicom. And that deal was kind of done basically in secret uh, without the knowledge of the higher ups at Sony. He just sort of made the deal <laughs> to do it creates this uh, really actually excellent sound chip, the way that it did sound, you know, using samples. It was really, really beautiful sound and uh, did this. And it was a big success. And, and so Kudaragi starts thinking about, well, what 
you know, what can we do in the future? Uh, and he really wanted to get Nintendo to sign this deal for him because he looked at CD-ROMs and he was just like, this is really the future of video games and was like, let's do a deal with Nintendo here because Sony didn't make video game consoles. It was really, you know, it was tough to get into the video game console business. So he sort of saw this sort of backdoor way of getting into the video game space, which was by essentially just doing this deal with Nintendo where they would license the Super Famicom hardware to Sony and Sony would create a version of it that had a CD-ROM drive in it. Sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it turns out that it, it was kind of sneaky on, on Sony's part, it seems, because later in interviews with Sony executives, we hear that uh, they kind of told Nintendo, like, oh, don't worry, we're not going to make games for CD-ROM. Oh. We're going to have a, we're going to put a CD-ROM drive in, but it's going to be for, it's going to be for like productivity type stuff, like encyclopedias or movies, music or karaoke, stuff like that. We're going to focus on everything but games. You guys do the games. Oh, so kind of like put them at ease. Like we're not going to take your competition or we're not going to become your competition. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah, like that was where they could get the deal done. But then like once the deal was signed, Sony kind of realized and looked at the deal and was kind of like, oh, you know, we actually the, the deal doesn't say we can't make games. Hmm. So once that deal was on paper, Sony had this deal with Nintendo where they had the right not only to produce, you know, Super Famicom hardware themselves, which, by the way, was not an unusual deal. Uh, there there had been things like this for the Famicom. You probably know about like the, you know, Sharp, uh, the, the electronics maker Sharp made the uh, twin Famicom, which is a combination Famicom and disk drive. Right. So Nintendo didn't mind licensing out the Famicom hardware for Sharp to make their own version. Sharp also did something called the Famicom Titler, which was a combination Famicom and a machine that would let you add subtitles to videos. Oh. For example, if you take your kid's birthday party and like, you know, add introductory text to it or something like that, you know. And so like that existed. And I think that Nintendo looked at this, this let's pop a CD-ROM onto the Super Famicom idea, especially in 1988, which was a, it was really, really early. It was prior to the launch of the TurboGrafx, you know, CD-ROM PC Engine 1 and thought, you know, oh, okay, this is sort of like the Famicom titler. They're going to take our game system and they're going to add on this sort of they probably expected people were going to use this for like in-home karaoke, <laughs> which was a pretty big use of uh, laser discs and then CD-ROMs or CD plus G technology in Japan, especially. Right. So that's what they were probably thinking. Uh, and then Sony was kind of like, we can produce this thing that's compatible with Nintendo's games and we can make our own games for it. And, and they don't have to pay any licensing to Nintendo. So Sony kind of stealthed themselves into uh, the, the game console business at that point. So... Sony basically like sneaks their way in and kind of finds this loophole where they can, you know, make games. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, this thing didn't come to fruition. At what point does it fall apart? Did they give it a name? Was it just the Super Nintendo CD-ROM or was it called the PlayStation at that point? So it, it was originally called the PlayStation. That's where the PlayStation came from. The PlayStation name was originally appended to this Sony product that was a combination of a Super Famicom or Super Nintendo that also had a CD-ROM drive. And importantly, it was not uh, souped up in any way, this, this machine. This was literally um, the, the exact same guts as a Super Famicom and had a CD-ROM drive on it. There was no extra process or anything like that. Oh, okay. I mean, yes, this did go bust, you know, very famously, spectacularly, because what ended up happening was 
so the the Consumer Electronics Show, which is what um, I mean, it still exists today, but that pretty much used to be E3 for video games. Also, video game companies did all their announcements at the Consumer Electronics Show, and they showed all their they did all their press conferences there um, up until the the mid '90s with E3. Okay. Leading up to the 1991 Summer Consumer Electronics Show. Nintendo and Sony were both very public about the fact that Sony was going to be making a CD-ROM drive for the upcoming Super Nintendo. The Super Famicom was already out in Japan, but Nintendo was, you know, gearing up to start selling it in the U.S. because it didn't come out until the end of 1991. And part of the marketing, part of the initial marketing for it was, oh, Sony is going to be making a CD-ROM drive for this. And then you see that very, very close to that summer consumer electronics show. As they get closer to the date of their respective press conferences sony has their press conference and then nintendo has theirs prior to sony's conference there is a news story that was probably essentially planted by nintendo you don't really know how it got there but i mean not really sure how they would find out unless nintendo just told the reporter this Mm -hmm. that nintendo was in fact planning on having uh, the company philips so sony was going to have philips come in and do the cd-rom for the super nes uh and not sony And so this happened about 48 hours prior to Nintendo's press conference that this this hit the news wires. And, you know, Sony, of course, tries to stop it from happening, tries to stop this announcement from happening at the press conference, but didn't work. But Sony was pretty much taken by surprise at that point because they felt that they were the ones who were partnering with Nintendo. But really, when Sony came out for its own press conference, people took away the um, the feeling that Sony like. There was there was a headline in I think the New York Times that was like Sony is Nintendo's partner, but it's also a rival because Sony made it very clear that with this PlayStation system, which they I believe they brought to CES and they showed it there, that Sony was going to be able to make its own games on this machine and that it wasn't going to have to pay Nintendo any licensing fees for it. And of course, Nintendo and licensing fees was a really big topic of conversation in the late 80s, early 90s. And there had been, you know, court cases and things like that about, you know, was Nintendo, uh, you know, did they have too tight a grip on the industry and things like that. So this was kind of big news that Sony had worked out a deal where they could do an end run. And Nintendo Nintendo kind of shot back and were like, Nintendo said there was a dispute as, as far as the terms of the agreement and what Sony was allowed to do in that agreement. But Sony at that point, one of the other things you have to know about Sony is that up through like 1987 or so, Sony was pretty much a hardware company. They made Walkman and they made, you know, CD players and things like that, right? But in 87, Sony acquired CBS Records. So Sony was now the music publisher for Michael Jackson, among other people, right? Yeah. Sony, the next year, acquires Columbia Pictures. So now they're a massive Hollywood movie studio. And then then they also start up their own video game publishing division. And so when they come out at CES, they're saying, oh, yeah, we're going to make a game based on the movie Hook. We're going to make a game based on Michael Jackson. They start kind of <laughs> rattling off all of these properties that they now essentially control and all these these their video game aspirations that they have so suddenly you know sony is now kind of like making big waves about the video games it's going to be making and it's saying that it has the right to take nintendo's console which remember is not even out in the u.s yet and that sony is going to take it and they're going to you know uh, make their own version of it and they can make cd-rom games of pay nintendo a dime yeah it's it's often uh sort of like 
positioned as Nintendo kind of screwed Sony over because Sony thought that they were in this lovey-dovey relationship and then Nintendo went behind Sony's back and, um, you know, announced this partnership with Philips. <laughs> but really, it was the both of them. It was the both of them really should have, they shouldn't have signed the contract that they signed <laughs> because it left too much to chance and Sony itself, you know, decided to, as far as anybody can tell kind of violate not the not the letter of the agreement but definitely the spirit in which the agreement seemed to have been made but Nintendo was also dumb too in terms of signing this contract that gave Sony all this power and not really paying attention to the power they were giving away I feel I think that Nintendo when they signed this contract kind of dismissed CD-ROM technology as something that that would work for video games they were so laser focused on cartridges being like the one and only medium that they felt that CD-ROMs just weren't going to pick up. Remember, this is 1988. There was no CD-ROM technology available for the the public essentially to to even you know play games on at this time. When the when the Turbo Graphics CD-ROM came out in Japan at the end of '88, those two games that came out for it, which was Fighting Street and Noriko, which is a dating game, those were the first ever uh, CD-ROM games ever in the world for any platform ever. Uh, and so uh, like that, that's how early this was that Nintendo and Sony were inking this agreement. And so they both kind of screwed each other. They both kind of stabbed each other in the back. It, it all kind of, you know, went bad. And then Nintendo said that it had partnered with Philips. Philips was bringing out and actually did bring out that same year as the Super Nintendo, uh, the CDI, which was its own CD-ROM based uh, video game system. The infamous home of the Zelda spinoffs and Hotel Mario. Exactly. And I mean, apparently part of the deal that Nintendo made with Philips was that they let Philips use uh, Nintendo characters to make uh, games. And <laughs> again, you have this like, did Nintendo know what it was doing when <laughs> when it agreed to this? Because it seemed like maybe a, a, a bad idea for like protecting the integrity of its property. Because yes, as you said, Philips made these games that were that were not very good. <laughs> and those are sort of the, the, that's the only thing remaining evidence, you know, physical evidence that we have that this Nintendo Philips partnership to make the CD-ROM drive ever existed because, you know, of course uh, it, it never came out. But the thing is, so this, so the funny thing about the Nintendo PlayStation is that a few years ago, and you probably know this, somebody discovered that they had one in their attic. <laughs> yeah. It was a guy who had worked at a different company with the guy who had previously been the president of Sony Computer Entertainment America. Right. And he bought a bunch of this guy's stuff at an auction when they auctioned all of the leftover stuff that was left in the office building at this company. Part of what he got was the, the so a prototype of the Sony PlayStation, the super Famicom CD ROM drive thing. And long story short, they got it working. Uh, they figured out how it works, which is great, but no software has ever been, you know, discovered for it. I have heard, stories that there might be some out there that people might have some but nothing has ever been made public it's it's unlikely that that software would be really amazing because the machine is just a cd-rom drive in a super nintendo it's probably just like a cartridge game you know with maybe some changes made to it or maybe no changes made because they never got that far in development because this thing kind of was on ice before the super nintendo even came out now was was the one that they found was it just an attachment that was on a Super Famicom or was it an actual like prototype, like all in one? It's an all in one, which was all that was ever made. Okay. They had talked about doing the attachment, but basically the only thing that ever got made was 
the all-in-one because Sony kind of forged ahead. Even after that CES kind of kerfuffle, Sony was like, well, we have the right to do this. And so they kind of forged ahead with making it. I think they showed off that PlayStation like in an event in Japan, like later on, I believe. So they didn't really outright cancel it for a little while. What then happens is Nintendo and, you know, Nintendo essentially just embarks on this like, essentially like a vaporware campaign because the (laughs) CD-ROM unit, they keep pushing it back. Nintendo eventually decides, I mean, they decide, okay, well, it needs a coprocessor. Like it needs another 16-bit processor in there because people are going to expect that these games are not just a cartridge game with some voice acting in it. They're going to expect these games are better than the Super Nintendo games that they have. They're going to look better and sound better. So they add more hardware into this this add-on they're working on with Philips. Then they go and they're like, 16-bit process. having another 16-bit processor in here isn't good enough. We've got to put a 32-bit processor into this thing. So now it gets pushed back another year. You know, it's like it it's just <laughs> sort of keeps going on. Meanwhile, Nintendo Power keeps telling people, like, it's coming out, it's coming out. And they're telling them that because they don't want them to go buy a Genesis and a Sega CD, which is already <laughs> available, right? Right, yeah. They're making people, like, wait for the Nintendo CD-ROM. And there was that sense uh, at that time that it's like, oh, but should I buy a Sega CD? It's kind of expensive. But Nintendo's going to make a CD-ROM drive. Should we get this one? The Nintendo one might be better. And Nintendo was serious. I mean, this was not, like, a lie. This was, they were really going to make this thing. So one of the things that I kind of looked into when I was writing an article about all this is uh, that it was reported in Stephen Kent's history book, The Ultimate History of Video Games, that Nintendo had paid a million dollars for the rights to the game The Seventh Guest, which was that very early full motion video based puzzle game for the PC CD-ROM. And in fact, this is true. Uh, And in fact, I I published this piece and... uh, I think it was Graeme Devine, one of the guys who worked on it, like went back and inquired about this deal. And yeah, Nintendo had paid about a million or had signed a million dollar deal, which they paid out, I guess, half of to the company to make Seventh Guest exclusive to the Nintendo, Super Nintendo CD-ROM. Wow. And they were doing this for the same reason that like, you know, when that guy who made Night Trap cashed in <laughs> with the Sega CD came out because people were coming up with these CD-ROM drives, but there was no content for them that really showed off the power of CD. So if you had any content whatsoever that was like video-based, was it was an interesting CD-ROM type game, mm-hmm. somebody was going to pay you a bunch of money for it because there was sort of a, there was a gold rush going on to like snatch up exclusive content. Nintendo did that with Seventh Guest and that's why the Seventh Guest, even though all these other FMV games appeared on like every system, Seventh Guest never appeared on a console except the Philips CDI. Huh, that's bizarre. Yep. Now things really take a weird turn because Sony comes back to this thing because Nintendo announces in, I believe, 92 that Sony is back with them and Nintendo and Sony and Philips are now all pooling all of their resources uh, to create the Super Nintendo CD-ROM add-on, and that Sony has now agreed that any licensing monies go to Nintendo. So Nintendo gets what they want, and Sony is back on board. But you may hear this and think, but wait, (laughs) when Sony, you know, and Nintendo had a falling out, that was what caused Ken Kutaragi to spin up the actual, what we now know as the PlayStation project. And that two years later, Sony released its own game console called the PlayStation 94. Right. 
That was always my understanding of the situation. Well, it's the same thing we've been hearing about through this entire story, which is that Sony was a big company in which everybody was constantly internally stabbing each other in the back at all times. You know, with Kudaragi doing the secret uh, sound chip to, you know, inking this deal with Nintendo about CD-ROMs. So on the one hand, you have Kudaragi doing the the PlayStation project. Like he he now wants to create a console, but the old guard at Sony, the conservative, you know, the kind of old guys running the company are like, why would we want to get into this risky business of making a video game console and starting up a whole business of making hardware and licensing software and da 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 da? Mm-hmm. Why would we do that? The smart play here is to just lend our expertise to Nintendo, which is the 800-pound gorilla of the video game industry, and just go with them. Right. That kind of sounds similar to we had an episode about the Apple Pippin and Bandai Namco. You know, the younger people were like, let's go work with Apple and make this console. And the older people were like, no, 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 let's just let's just help other people with their consoles. Like, why should we make our own? A little risky. Yep. I mean, that's. Very, very similar. And so the members of the board at Sony officially decide we are going to get back involved with this project with Nintendo. Meanwhile, Kudaragi is like, well, what do I do? And apparently what happened was, you know, Kudaragi was able to go to Oga, who was the uh, the, the CEO of Sony at that time, who kind of had a soft spot for Kudaragi, apparently, and essentially convince him that what had happened at CES when Nintendo, you know, kind of ditched Sony for Philips was a an unforgivable slight and that Sony needed to respond in kind. Hmm. And he got the CEO's approval to forge ahead with the PlayStation project. And so it was sort of a, um, it was being done by Sony Music at first before. Oh, I see. Uh, it wasn't like the Sony hardware division. It was the Sony Music division. That was where Kudaragi came from. That was where, or that was where the, the PlayStation project was, was, was spun up. And it happened in record time. The PlayStation came out in 1994. I like to say the rest is history at that point. But in fact, there was uh, in, in 94 and 95. And, and even really in 1996, there was a pretty fierce rivalry between the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn, uh, especially in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, and in those first couple of years, especially before the Nintendo 64 came out, like Sega Saturn was doing well and holding its own and was actually very successful in Japan. The first few weeks and months, and I don't even know about the, I think, I think by the first year, the PlayStation and the Saturn were, were like tied as far as amount of hardware sales. Saturn had virtual fighter. PlayStation was still kind of looking for its killer app. It it ends up being, of course, PlayStation, you know, doing the exclusive deal with Squaresoft that, you know, tips the scales in its favor. But then that kind of leaves the CD-ROM and Nintendo ends up canceling the CD-ROM, you know, shock. They never unveiled it. They never showed it to anybody. They never showed any games at all, ever. They end up canceling it. Mm -hmm. Then we find out around the same time that Project Reality, which is what they were calling the Nintendo 64 at that point when it was first announced, would use cartridges and so that now they skipped over cd-rom entirely and they wouldn't even going to do it for their next generation machine which would then be a huge problem for them it was probably for it was really it was for the best that the super nintendo cd-rom never came out i mean honestly <laughs> i feel like the sega cd certainly kind of like divided sega's attention and the the user base for their platform and it was like what well, do we make a cd game a cartridge game both Whereas the Super Nintendo, just the games just kept getting better and better. And like really the 16-bit CD-ROMs to me didn't really provide that much of a boost. And I feel Mm. like it was just better to just move on to the next generation of hardware at that point. Now, not putting a CD-ROM in the Nintendo 64, obviously that was a very dumb idea. But yeah, I'd love it if uh, one day 
a prototype or a development kit of the add-on, the Philips Sony Nintendo 32-bit, you know, add-on device, because, you know, they were making them. There were probably prototypes out there. It's Nintendo, and, and prototype hardware almost never gets out of Nintendo. Like, it's in it's in the vault in Kyoto, but it's not <laughs> anywhere else. So, like, the the idea of, like, finding the add-on is, is probably not going to happen, but maybe, and if we were to find, you know, the hardware and maybe some software for it, that would be a pretty cool, like, holy grail, but it's it's super unlikely. I think it's all in Miyamoto's basement. Yeah, hopefully. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the Super Nintendo CD-ROM today, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all from us for now. Thanks for listening. We'd like to give a special shout out to Game Boy Chiptune Master Jamatar, who allowed us to use his track Midori as opening and closing music. You can find more of his banging beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting Jamatar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast or want to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out via Twitter. I can be found at SuperBenTendo, and Push, who will return next week, can be found at PushDustIn. This episode's guest expert, Chris Kohler, can also be found on Twitter at KobunHeat. That's K-O-B-U-N-H-E-A-T. Be on the lookout for the final episode of Season 1, dropping soon.